Hey, Kel, did you ever get to go into the Diamond Tool Building? Not one time. Not even inside the doors, even? Okay, all right. So the doors closed in 1994, so I was 15. And in my 15 years of life, I never once went inside. I remember I remember picking you up, I think with probably with mom. Obviously, I wasn't oh, driving. You weren't driving, no. No, after work occasionally for some reason. And I remember waiting in the parking lot that was across Grand Avenue from Diamond for you to come out. But I never, never once went inside. I was just a dumb kid. So you tell me, why didn't I ever go in? I don't know. Um, wow. It was certainly an interesting place. Um, I'll, I'll tell you about it. But uh, let me say that you're getting bridged with Garen Kelly. I'm Jerry Halston, and this is my daughter, Kelly Halston Erickson. Yep, and this is the podcast that's light on history and heavy on nostalgia. But before you start looking around inside, tell me how you got there in the first place. Well, I was uh, around 20 years old and uh, was the Vietnam era, and I was going to get drafted. Uh, my lottery number was 17. Lowest numbers go first, uh, you know, one through 365 days of the year. I was 17, so oh I was going to get drafted. And I was going up to uh, the Luth Area Vocational Technical Institute, now known as Lake Superior College, where I you I know teach. it well, yes. And I... Um, I was taking electronics technology, a two-year course, and uh, I signed up to get into the Air National Guard because that's, you know, you're serving your military time that way too. There was a waiting list. That's fine. I got two years. I got to do school anyway. And at the end of my first year, I was good, and I had my summer off. I worked a little bit, and my second year began. The Air National Guard called and said, okay, we're ready for you to go to basic training. I said, yeah, but I'm going to school here. And they said, well, you know, we can put you back on the list, but the list is just as long as when you signed up in the first place, which means it'll be a little over a year again. And, shoot, I would have been eligible for the draft for the Army, and I just really didn't feel like doing that. What do you, what do you mean by that? By which, which part? The, you were eligible for the draft for the Army. That means you would have gone to Vietnam. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. I, I knew several dead people. Uh, who had served. Sure. And I just, uh, you know, I thought uh, serving the in the Air National Guard was a good alternative. So yep. I dumped the school. I did my Air National Guard thing. I did the basic training. I did the training here at home at the air base up there. And those could be some stories for a whole other time. But um, when I was done uh, with the Air Guard, I, I couldn't start school, you know, until fall. And I was going to get married to your mother, uh, April, and I had to have a job. Mm -hmm. So uh, Grandpa Tracy, your grandfather, my soon-to-be father-in-law, worked at Diamond Tool and Horseshoe Company. And he said, Gare, he always called me Gare. Mm -hmm. That's why you call me Gare. Yes. We'll talk about that, too. He said, uh, I can get you on down there. I said, okay, fair enough. So it was the beginning of April. I went down. And uh, Jack Swanstrom himself, vice president of operations, interviewed me. And he said, so you're going to marry uh, Tracy's daughter, are you? I said, yes, I am. And he said, is that a sure thing? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, end of this month, you know, it was April. And he said, well, because I only hire married heads of household. And you need to be, he said, do you want to be hired on as a student or full time? 
I said, well, I need to work full-time right now, but it's good, you're full-time then. And I got hired, and, and also to get hired, you had to be a legacy. Someone on the inside had to recommend you. Really? And if, if you were not recommended by someone, you didn't stand a chance, and they made no bones about it. And if you did anything to bad, you know, to bring smoke on yourself, you also brought smoke on the person who recommended you as well. Oh, my god! You're gosh. both going down. So it was a sacred thing to be recommended to be hired. So you got hired. I got hired. It was Good Monday, the Monday after Easter. And uh, Jack, uh, this was afternoon, about 3 o'clock, and he said, uh, yeah, you need to go to Undine's and get some safety shoes. So Undine's? I, yeah, it was a shoe store on Grand Avenue, uh, you know, around 39th. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I go there and I get these Frankenstein shoes to wear, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I show up at uh, at 3.30 in the afternoon, the next afternoon, as uh, directed. And uh, I, st- I was ready to start work. I think they had just negotiated a union contract and I started, there was a 45-day probation period. And I think I was making like 3.43 an hour or something like that. And after the probation, though, you would be up to $3.83 an hour. All right, let's get real about this, we, though. Let's do 1972 Money Talk. Is this a good-paying job? That was a good-paying job. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. In 1972, uh, if you made 100 bucks a week, you're doing okay. Okay, All okay. Right? So this is, you know, do the math. I think I'm going to have a house up on a hill. No two ways about it. Okay, all right, doing the math real quick. So, what oh, was yeah. your position exactly? Yeah. I was assigned to the wrench department, oh, general okay. labor. Okay. Oh, by the way, the math is in $152 gross a week. I know. That's great okay. money. Way oh, to go. Yeah. Some taxes got paid Ooh, every Thursday. I'll tell you what, it was awesome. You for could sure. bring your, your check down to the come on in, and they would cash it for you Yeah. and give you a little token for a free beer. Oh. Yes, sir. Very yeah. savvy. Very savvy. <laughs> Mm-hmm, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I walk in the place, and uh, the foreman came and picked me up, and his name was Joe. Mm-hmm. Joe Straza. He was chairman, spoke mid accent and such. Yeah. Joe, uh, he, he did fight in World War II himself, but his side lost. Okay. But Joe was a wonderful guy, Joe Strasser. Uh, he's going to show me my new job, mm-hmm. and I was going to take the wrench. And a wrench, you know, the wrench has the adjustable jaw, and the, the jaw itself is round. It goes up and down, a round hole in the wrench. When I got the wrench at my, my new position there, I had to run this press, punch press, and it was a square file for all practical purposes. And you'd stand it up. file was about 12 inches long. I'd stand it up, put it into the square, this unfinished square hole in the wrench. That's where the neural thing goes, the thing that you twist to adjust the jaw back and forth. Mm-hmm. Hit the foot pedal on this big press, and it would start to come down, pushing this, this square file through this square hole to make the file, the hole bigger. Okay? Yes. And you had to hold on to it. Otherwise, it's going to come off and go crooked and break on you. Uh-huh. Okay, so you had to hold it and then get your hand out of there because there wasn't enough clearance once it was done for you. You couldn't keep your fingers on it, take your hand off. Oh. So you just do that. There she go. You got a square hole. 
and you'd you'd countersink at this next little operation. And then there was a drill, a reamer that went up and down. It was air operator. Uh-huh. About that fast. And you would take this wrench and you you'd you'd slap it onto this fixture, reamer would come down, go and you'd pull the wrench back out because it keeps going Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. So you don't you don't have to bother with it. So Joe is showing me this. And uh, this reamer grabs a hold of it. The wrench goes around in the circle and such, off of the fixture, twirls around, snaps the reamer off. The wrench goes bouncing off the concrete or the brick wall, puts a chip in the wall. And I'm standing there thinking, oh, Jesus. This is Joe is showing you this. Joe, yeah, the man, my, my trainer, yeah, my yeah. friend Joe. And he's messed, he's... And he screwed it up. Yeah, well, big time. Well, he said, we're going to have Harvey come over and fix this. He'll show you how, and then I'll, I'll be back later. But he was just like, and I'm whatever, sta- like I'm no big deal. I'm there, and, I, and I'm thinking, oh my God, what have I done? Mm-hmm. You know? And I, I certainly don't want Grandpa Tracy to think less of me right. because I walk out. And then again, then I think, well, all right, I'll, you know, I'll work. I can tough this out. I can work here. I'll save up a few hundred bucks to tide me over and I'll go go get a good job. Right. All right. Yeah. And I don't know if it was, I never saved up the couple hundred bucks or just (laughs) how it played out, but you know, all of a sudden I stayed there and it was fascinating to run uh, production work in that you know, the, these wrenches, you would do, oh, maybe a 1,000 or 1,500 of them in a shift. True production work. They, they they train a chicken to do it if its beak was a little stronger, you know? Yeah. But, and you had to have, you had to be able to put yourself in a certain mindset to do that. Otherwise, you would run through everything you know in about an hour. And you just couldn't think anymore, and it would start to irritate you. <laughs> so what did it, so okay talk talk about like what would happen in a typical day? You worked the afternoon shift, so you started at three thirty. Yeah, and you'd go yeah. in and I, what? Well, you you walk in those uh, double doors, which um, well, I, yeah, I won't talk about the double doors. Somebody told me those are miracle doors because people. Uh, come in just fine and when they walk out they're just so decrepit and so broken and so worn out but once they're through them doors and outside they run to their cars and oh take boy yes but uh, yeah mm-hmm. you'd, you'd walk in and you had a time card you'd take your time card and you'd punch in mm-hmm. and put your card in a rack and you'd walk back to the wrench area and when i first started there were lockers half height lockers and there was no real break room the break room was was uh defined the boundaries were set by the lockers that surrounded these church table looking things you know what a mm-hmm. church table sure, is sure and uh, there were benches and uh, one side of one of the walls of the lunch area was um vending machines where there was pop there was sandwiches there was coffee and um another one of the <laughs> defining areas was just stacks of tools in these pans that it was pretty crude. So you were just sitting right out there, and there was guys working over here running machines and, you know, always loud. Did you wear hearing protection? Well, no. Probably. <laughs> Not by today's standards. Uh-huh. They had uh, cotton batten 
that was probably six inches wide, and it was in a machine that had a, a crank, a little dispenser. And you'd give it a crank, and about a, a six-inch by, oh, inch and a half by maybe three-quarter inch piece of cotton batting would come out. You'd have this little little rectangular thing, and it showed you instructions on how to fold it so you could then stuff it into your head, and that was your hearing protection. You'd g- they'd, they'd give you tampons to put in your ears? No, no, no there was no <laughs> string or anything. And uh, okay, and there was, uh, <laughs> and and some people it was you know those instructions were a little bit too much, so they just kind of stuffed the cotton in their ears, and there'd be a lot of it hanging out. And I don't know, <laughs> in some cases it, it looked like their stuffing was coming out. You know, uh, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. I don't want to be rude, but it it truly did. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and you would go to your machine and see you had uh, thirty minutes convenience time personal convenience time okay break time yeah all right for an entire shift yeah just 30 minutes yeah that 30 minutes began when you shut your machine off and it didn't end your break didn't end until you turned that machine back on sure this included having a sandwich catching a smoke doing a cup of coffee using the bathroom getting a drink Jamming cotton batten in your ears. Stuffing cotton back in your head. Yes. <laughs> Don't push too hard. Some of it will fall in. I thought you were a union shop. 30 minutes. Jeez. Well, that's what was agreed to. All right. Oh, they were hard about it, too. I Very bet strict. they were. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you were on the job a lot, and there was a buzzer that uh, buzzed for your half-hour lunch period, and the, the 30 minutes included wash-up time. And believe me, that was no hospital. It took a little washing to get yourself clean enough to jam a uh, sandwich in your head. Right. So in in that time, you could sit down, have a sandwich, have a cup of coffee, smoke two cigarettes, and uh, be back uh, pushing the button on that machine again uh, in in plenty of time. Okay, wait. So you did have you did have a an additional half hour for lunch. Yes. Oh, okay. You weren't, so you weren't paid for that. Oh, but you had the 30 minutes but paid 30 and then a 30-minute break. Oh, okay, yeah. gotcha. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, okay. And this is an eight-and-a-half-hour shift, I assume? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, the beginning, once I, I got in the groove, uh, before your shift started, uh, you would stand in this one area, and Joe or Ed, Ed Annabeck was the other uh, supervisor. They kind of swapped back and forth afternoons and and day shift, uh, they would assign your job because the machinery there, some of it was set up to do the same thing all the time and other things. There was like the 10 and 12-inch wrench line. It would be switched back and forth between a 10-inch wrench and a 12-inch wrench. The same operations were performed on them, okay? And other machines, oh, they do completely different tools, Okay. You know, and it would be based on a run of tools, and a run was whatever they forged. They start forging the tool, and th- when the dies run out or, or wear out, that's the end of the run. So you might get uh, a run of uh, 10,000 wrenches, mm-hmm. and the dies in the forge shop were shot. So that's what you would run through on 10-inch wrenches, and you'd get another run of 8,012. So it varied. But uh, you would be assigned your job. And there were certain people that just did the same thing all the time. 
and there were other people who, like myself, uh, who did different things. And I actually spent about two years sawing the slot in wrenches that that jaw slides up and down in. There's a round hole, and then in the handle, there's a slot where that I ran the saws. And there was uh, two and three other guys that ran those saws. We ran four inch through 24 inch wrenches. We did auto wrench jaws. And we made about, if we made 1,300 sawings a shift, it's about average. And there was probably 3,500 adjustable wrenches that were made every day. Huh. Yeah, in in all of the sizes. Where the heck did they go? They should have been falling out the windows all over the world, for God's sake. So I'm assuming... Isn't that crazy? Okay, so there was a... You had... They were actually forged from, like, random metal in... At Diamond Tool? They were were forged. Okay. Everybody thinks Diamond Tool. Oh, yeah, I remember going there and seeing the windows open and the the hammers and the red hot and the the bang, bang, bang stuff that would knock uh, knickknacks off the wall and houses a Mm -hmm. block away. Yeah. And that's the forging process. Everything started out as a forging. And every forging started out as a bar of steel. Some of them were square bars. Most of them was round materials, mm-hmm. round stock. Mm-hmm. And that is, is just a whole nother form, an art form, those things. You had, to, I, I've tried forging horseshoes. Yeah. And um, a disaster at best. I No, you have to have a certain rhythm, a certain feel to do forging and I no I could never do it so is it is it really like they have like if I have just like a round bar of steel or whatever mm-hmm. and you actually they actually would heat it up and like it would clink heat, on it like a blacksmith would, it, yeah wow yeah. even for the wrenches it would be uh oh geez I think it was 22 2300 degrees you'd heat the bar and the die itself okay that that would head the impression of the wrench had several steps in it. On the very left, you would bend the bar mm-hmm. to an essential shape. In one part of it, you would very lightly tap, tap, tap the steel so that part of what you were doing was thin, and on the very end it was heavy because that's where the heavy end of the wrench is going to be. Sure. Then you turn it 90 degrees and you flop it down. You kind of get a rough shape on it. And then you put it into another impression on the die. Then you get your finish shape, okay? And the wrench itself, as using a wrench as an example, horseshoes are the same thing. There's enough steel, there's excess steel. So the steel is actually squirting out the sides from this impression. Mm-hmm. And they use a device to trim it, and it's like a paper punch. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you punch the wrench handle through, you throw the rest away. Huh. So it wasn't it wasn't a fully hand forged process. There were machines oh, that kind of. It, it was it was all machine. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, there okay. were several types of hammers, uh, and most of them had were powered down um, drop hammers. Yeah. And oh yeah, it, oh, it was, that's so interesting and uh, hot, so, so, oh, sweaty. Yeah. Somewhere I do have, and maybe maybe we can post it, um, a video of somebody forging a wrench. Huh. And uh, the whole process, and it's just it's just an art form. These guys were so good at this. 
Just amazing. Okay, so what, all right, earlier you referred to this, like, mindset you'd have to get into, like, get in the zone or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like, what, what, talk about that. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was an amazing thing. Either you can do it or you can't. There was no learning to it. You almost had to put all of your attention to what you were doing, what was in front of you. And then again, give it no attention. You just became automated. And I used to listen to the the click, click, ding of all the machinery parts. Yeah. And there was a rhythm to it. And I mean, I still have all all my fingers, uh, both my eyes. Mm -hmm. So apparently I was good enough at it. And you you just do it. And all of a sudden, you're doing this stuff. You're clicking away, you know. And um, you look at the clock, holy smokes, I should probably take a break. It's been three hours. Then you go take a break and go back and do it some more. And you can just, if you do it right, you can just spend your days like that. And if you start thinking about, oh, I got to do this after work, I have to do that. You worry about your 15-year-old daughter. (laughs) You know, (laughs) if you have to do those things, uh, you're not going to be successful with this. Did you have, were there people who are just, who started, they're just like, you can't, you yeah, oh can't yeah. handle this? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, we, I was a supervisor in the wrench department, the belt department, the heat tree, treat department, uh, many, many years. And we had a lot of people come in and uh, just maybe, well, there's one person I got going on this first brooch, they called it. And I showed them how to do it. And we had a lot of it was an afternoon shift there were a lot of people and I I showed them what to do and told them that uh, I'll be back in about a half hour and we'll talk you know I'll see how you're doing and I was back in less than a half hour and he wasn't there and I said well maybe he went to the men's room or something and I kind of looked around and he had to uh, put his time slip uh, in where you're supposed to put it you would always write down what you did and how many hours and such and he wrote his name his clock number and uh, no thanks (laughs) (laughs) no thanks no thanks never saw him again you know okay okay Uh, well i just i find this i find this fascinating you know i've worked my entire adult life as a person who is constantly changing things like there is very little that is the same for me in my job from day to day you know i'm working with people i'm teaching if anything's different it's always different right and so uh, to imagine doing that kind of labor, I might I might have been a no thanks person, but I'd like yeah. to think that I could. It almost seems like very meditative kind it, of. Yes, yes, yeah. it was. Uh, yeah, it, there again, if it was something you could get into, it was a, very much a Zen thing. It, it'd be just fine, easy way to make money, and it paid pretty well. Paid a lot more than three eighty three in the end. You know. Yeah, of course. It was all good. There were so many wonderful people there. Yeah. Quirky people? There were some very quirky people. All right. Any stories I, you can I tell? I remember uh, one of my fellow supervisors uh, made fun of my friend Joe's English because Joe always spoke mid accent. He wrote mm-hmm. the same way he talked, you know. Sure. Uh, Van Dunn, V-E-N, Dunn. Oh, yeah. yeah that uh-huh. kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh, it was fine. I knew what he meant. And uh, this, this dude made fun of his English. And uh, Joe grabbed him by the shirt and had him literally up against the wall and had picked him up. And he says, listen, you SOB, if 
if you couldn't speak English, you would have to bark like a dog, he says. If I couldn't speak English, I know four other languages. I can still talk. Ooh. And set him down and walked away. And, I, and at that time, I thought, wow. And I have never thought twice about anybody who speaks English with an accent because Joe's right. I'd have to bark like a dog. It's true. And, you know, if they apologize for their accent, no, 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 you don't. You are doing great. I understand you. Nope, nope, nope. Besides Joe, he'd come back and paste me against the wall. Joe. But he was, he was a good guy. And there was, oh, so many shenanigans that went on. Oh, my gosh. It was a dangerous place. Somebody, in one of those drop hammer deals, mm-hmm. uh, when you uh, stopped it, it would be with the weight of it way up high on, you know, and when you started it, it would come down once, bang, and then you'd start, you know. It would, yeah, start its and, rhythm. And somebody had uh, taped a dead rat uh, to the oh, top God. die, and uh, dude came back and did the first smack, and I guess that thing was like, 360 degrees around there was oh, all this no. stuff. Uh, we found that if you put an aspirin in a 350 ton press and press it hard enough, it sounds like a firecracker oh. when it goes off. Mm-hmm. Terrific, yeah. Nothing you can really use, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, the, and the management was okay with all of this? Oh, not at all. No, <laughs> not very upset. Not at all. I was supposed to get very mad at all these things. Yes. And I thought it was pretty funny. Good. Yeah. But the people who were there, I mean, at the time I was there in 1972, there were uh, DPs, displaced persons. Joe was a DP. He was actually Yugoslav, and he was conscripted by the Germans uh, to be in the army, otherwise we're going to shoot you. Oh, sure, right. And so Heil Hitler, you know, okay. And uh, when the war was over, well, uh, Yugoslavia didn't want him back because you're a German soldier. Germany didn't want him because... You're not a German. Right. You're displaced. Where do you go? Right. Uh, so we had several. We had several guys who were prisoners of war in World War II. Wow. And they were they were wonderful people, really. Um, it was just a very, a lot of them were very eccentric. And uh, it was just a wonderful experience for me to be able to work with those people. The Swanstroms. Uh, Jack Swanstrom. John Swanstrom was the dad. He was uh, president, chairman of the board, all these things. And he went through the factory twice a day. And uh, I don't know that God himself could have gone through and had any more impact on people. Really? In that he was very stern, really didn't smile much. He knew his business inside out. He would come back and say, you know, on this thing, I think we should go another sixteenth of an inch here. And he'd issue orders to people. Rodney, you do this. And Dick, you do that. Jerry, make sure this happens. And then bring it to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was that much of a hands-on kind of guy. Jack was exactly the same, his son. And Jack was so uh, probably in his 30s at the time, college educated. He worked Diamond Tool uh, as a college student. And he had worked almost every job in the place. And when challenged, you know, he would, he would like his dad, he was on the floor a lot more, but like his dad, he would tell somebody, you know, you should do it like this or you should do it like that. And if you challenged him, says, show me. 
he would tuck his tie into a shirt because he always wore a white shirt and a tie, roll up his sleeves and say, give me a few minutes, I got to practice. And he'd do a couple of whatever the operation was. And a lot of these operations did require some skill. It wasn't just pushed a button and it flips you a fish. Mm -hmm. You had to have some skill for these. And by gosh, he could do everything. Really? And I, my, my admiration from him will never end that there's a guy who knew his business. Mm-hmm. All right? Mm-hmm. There's a manager. There's a true leader. He had it together. Well, speaking of managing, I know that in your later years, we you had some management responsibilities, and we do have to talk oh, about, yeah, yeah. about Diamond Closing, but uh, I, I'm afraid that's going to have to wait for another episode because we have another Ask a Duluthian Uh-oh. question. Okay, so we'll we'll save that that last bit for another episode. But that, here's yes, the question: You ready for whole this? Another time. Hit I know. It. Okay, <clears throat> dear Garen Kelly, <laughs> I don't understand the difference between the West End and West Duluth. It makes no sense. Help! Oh boy, <sighs> this is okay. Well. So this question has been answered a lot in various places, and it's always kind of fun to talk about because it doesn't make any sense. You would think the West End would be the end. It's not. No, no. The West, uh, you can go further. Uh, way <laughs> further. Way the further. The West Duluth. I had always felt it was right around Wheeler Creek uh, because uh, kids who lived this, the West End side of Wheeler Creek, uh, went to the Bryant School mm-hmm. and went to Lincoln Junior School. And the people west of it did go to Merritt. They did go to West Junior High. However, I have been corrected many, many times in that the Ordox. Yes. The Ordox are the defining uh, thing, that uh, anything west of the Ordox is west of Luth. And there is no west, and apparently it is the Lincoln Park Craft District. Yes, that's Previously known as the Friendly West. End, yes, yes. To dispel some of the <laughs> negative... Uh, negativity regarding the area in which I grew up, and I did grow up in the West End, just up from Harrison. Yep. Um, so I, I believe that is the uh, contemporary and or totally accepted uh, division between the two. Yeah, and if you have any questions about where the ore docks are, you just, just drive on 35 and you're going to drive under them. You're probably going to see giant piles of taconite. Yeah. That's, yeah. And then you're going to see the ore docks. There they docks are. Docks number five and six. Oh, that's what they are, huh? Yeah. Yeah. If you look closely yeah. in between the docks, often during the shipping season, you can see a ship in between there. And often they are loading. It could be loading taconite right. or unloading yeah. taconite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They used to load uh, just iron ore there, and they were have been referred to as ore boats. Yes. Yeah, and uh, there were some old uh, Swedish relatives uh, visiting my folks up on a hill, and my dad had the binoculars looking. See the ore boat? And the old Swede uh, took a look out there and said, Norman, I don't see the oars. True story. Good one. All right, all right. Speaking of the boats. Way too long. Okay, the the bridge is coming down, so uh, I I think we're going to wrap it up here today. Um, I think we could kill this one, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty good, though, but we'll definitely get into the the end end of Diamond Tool. Uh, Uh, But until then... Until then, the Getting Bridged podcast is researched and written by Kelly Halston Erickson, remembered and recorded by Jerry Halston at the compound on Park Point, and produced by Jerry Halston and Kelly Halston Erickson. We have no one to blame but ourselves here. 
Sources are compiled at rss.com slash podcasts slash gettingbridged. And you can ask questions and comment on our episodes on Instagram at gettingbridged. I should sign up for that Instagram thing, huh? Joining our Facebook group by searching for Getting Bridged Podcast and by emailing us at gettingbridged at gmail.com. Special thanks to Mary and Dan, you know who you are, and the many people in our lives for whom reminiscing is a varsity sport. Thank you.